Hi everyone, I thought I'd share a short video reflection for Trinity Sunday. The doctrine of the Trinity says that the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit are different persons, but are all one God. How do we get our minds around that? In the early 2000s, I was living in Ballarat in a little house close to the centre of town. And one day, a couple of men came and knocked on the door of our house. And they asked if they could talk to me about Jesus. I said I was a Christian. But they were concerned about what I believed about the Trinity. Did I believe that the three persons of the Trinity were equal? Or did I believe that one of them was in charge of the other two? To be honest, it wasn't something I'd really thought about before. And it wasn't really something I thought was important. They were pretty convinced, though, that one member of the Trinity was the boss of them all. And that they, they had a lot of proof texts to try and convince me. But I got the sense that while they were pretty sure they had it all systematically worked out, they seem to be missing the point. More recently, this is when I was doing my period of discernment, I was asked by a member of a congregation whether I thought we should just get rid of the idea of the Trinity so that we'd be able to agree more easily with our Jewish and Muslim neighbours and form one faith with them, maybe. I think there's something compelling about the idea of three traditions coming together to form something new. And I resonated with the feelings of awkwardness and embarrassment that come up when we talk with our Jewish and Muslim neighbours about the Trinity, because we can't really explain it or justify it rationally. How can we say that God is three, but also that we still believe in one God? It would be much more straightforward and harmonious to just agree that God is one and keep it at that, wouldn't it? I wouldn't say that today's Gospel reading is specifically outlining the doctrine of the Trinity. But I think it also depicts a sense of bewilderment about early Christian ideas to do with the Creator, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus is described as a leader of the Pharisees, a group that often gets a bad rap in the Gospels because they were the closest rivals of the ancient church. The Pharisees were a Jewish movement that seems to have been focused on helping ordinary Jewish people to follow the Torah in their everyday lives so that all Jewish people could live what their culture considered to be a good life. In the Gospels, Jesus has more to do with the Pharisees than with any of the other Jewish movements at the time, which suggests that they actually had a lot of similarities. After the time of Jesus, when the temple was destroyed, it seems that tensions between the Christians and the Pharisees were intensified and both movements tried to fill the void that was left by the temple. So they were in competition. Nicodemus has often been criticised by Christian readers, firstly for approaching Jesus only in private in the middle of the night, and secondly for not understanding what Jesus is talking about. To be fair to Nicodemus, what Jesus is saying here is a bit tricky and confusing, and we Christians haven't always been able to fathom it either. 
when Jesus says that no one can see the reign of God unless they're born from above, there's a double meaning. Jesus could just as easily be understood to be talking about being born anew, which is where the idea of Christians being born again has come from. Another familiar phrase that's been popular in our churches comes up later in verse 16. I think this was the first Bible verse that I ever learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. When I learned that verse as a child, I was pretty convinced that it was talking about living forever. But it seems as though it would be more accurate to say it's talking about a life of the ages or a timeless life. It's much less clear to us what Jesus would mean by a timeless life, but it sounds to me more like he's talking about the kind of good life that Pharisees like Nicodemus were pursuing by following the timeless instructions of the Torah, the kind of life that always has merit. When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, I wonder if it's best for us to take the posture of Nicodemus and admit that we're intrigued, but we don't understand. I think that's actually the kind of posture that led to the doctrine of the Trinity. The ancient church believed in the one God of Judaism, but their experience had led them to the conviction that Jesus was God, something that should not have been possible. They also believed that the spirit who Jesus had sent to advocate for them was God. This led to an understanding of God as a kind of unified community, creator, Christ and spirit, connected together by relationships of love. There's difference and yet there's love. It's an understanding of God that demonstrates how we are to live. Personally, I've found this icon by the Russian painter Rublev is a more helpful illustration of the Trinity than a systematic diagram. God is portrayed here as a community gathered around a meal table and they're making space for us to come and approach them, join them at the table. This is not something that needs to be understood so much as it's something we're invited to participate in. We're accepted into a loving community and we're invited to share that love with the world. The most vivid experience I have had of this has been from the first peoples of these lands, particularly through the Indigenous Hospitality House in Carlton North. If you haven't heard me talk about it before, the Indigenous Hospitality House is a project of Carlton Church of All Nations, one of the other churches in our presbytery. And there's a household of volunteers there who host Indigenous families when they need to come to the city for hospital business. That might sound like it's a great charitable act, but we need to keep in mind that we were hosting dispossessed people on stolen land as colonists. For those of us who are descended from colonists and migrants, we're actually guests in this land. Even if we forget that, even if we act like it legitimately belongs to us, 
even though we've so often been bad guests, if we look at our history, my experience at the house was that when Indigenous families came and stayed, we were often invited into their lives. We were invited to their table. We were invited to sit with them and hear their stories around the table over a cup of tea or over dinner. When that happened around the kitchen table, we were being invited into their way of life, into their way of living in these lands. And I think that's what we're being invited into when First Peoples have asked for a voice to Parliament in recent years, or when they've asked for a treaty, something that's been asked for for a very long time. In uh, Brooks, Brooke Prentice's treaty video, she's asking us to join them at the table, to sit and listen to them, not to jump in and try to fix things, not to treat them as charity cases. We're being invited as a nation into a different way of living in these lands. And that invitation is an expression of love. This Reconciliation Week, we're being invited to the table. We're being invited to treaty. And this Trinity Sunday, we're being invited to the table. We're being invited into God's community of love. We're being invited to share that love with the world. I'd like to invite you to take some time just to reflect on what God's Spirit is saying to us today. <laughs> 